are listening to booze bullshit and true crime i'm brie i'm wade and we're gonna talk about some gnarly gnarly shit some disgusting revolting shit yes what did i say earlier talking about people eating other people yep. other people eating other people that's what i said yep cannibalism mm-hmm. i still haven't come up with a uh funny name for this episode it very well may just be cannibalism but that's the <laughs> that's the tentative name basic so how you doing, babe? We've been away from each other for the past week. I'm doing good. Yeah. Yeah. Excited to start Sunday morning, tomorrow morning, so bright and early. For those of you that don't know us, we took a job together. I think we talked about it on the last episode. I've been out training for the past week because he was working his last two weeks at his job he was working previously, and we are gonna drive out there at six in the morning tomorrow and be working together. Whoop whoop. Gonna learn me real good. Dream team. And you know what I was thinking about the other day? I don't. If there is any job that has a high likelihood of coming across a dead body, it's probably our job. (laughs) How cool would that be? It's not that cool. It probably wouldn't when it actually happened, but like in theory, thinking about it. Sure. Hiking out in the woods all day in super desolate areas that are people's property. You never know. It could happen. It could happen. All right. So as far as background goes, I have some pretty cool shit I found online regarding cannibalism. Um, The word itself is derived from cannibals. I think I'm saying that right. The Spanish name for the Caribs in West Indy. And that's the tribe that is famous for participating in cannibalism. If you've heard about that one tribe that eats. Yeah, that's them. (laughs) <laughs> um, the it's also from the Spanish word cannibal or or caribal, which meant a savage. And it's also called in I can't say this word. I don't think anthropophy fagi. It's a word. There's another word for it. It's there. Yep. I can't say it. Don't ask me to say it. I think you're right though. Anthropophy. I probably anthropophy. wouldn't have put that in but i was Mm -hmm. definitely drinking whiskey while i was in my room writing this this will be fun cannibalism involves consuming all or part of another individual of the same species as food to consume the same species or show cannibalistic behavior is a common ecological interaction in the animal kingdom so it happens pretty often so pretty much they're saying that it relates this relates to the animal kingdom like, we're getting this behavior from the animals. We are animals. Exactly. Yeah. So I think we all kind of had it from the start. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't think anybody's learning it from anybody. It's just more common in the animal kingdom. Um, it has been recorded more in more than 1,500 different species, which I thought was really interesting. So 1,500 different species of animal they've, like, observed it happening so that means there's probably more species that do it human cannibalism is well documented both in ancient and recent times so it happens um more in our species than we'd probably like to admit cannibalism oh whoopsie Cannibalism has occasionally been practiced as a last resort by people suffering from famine um, even in modern times, um, a famous example includes the ill-fated Donner Party, which I'm sure all of you out there have heard of. And if you haven't really researched that, you should look into it. Last podcast on the left did like a two or three part series on it. That's another podcast that I really like. And it was fucking... I haven't really done anything about it. Nar. Or research about it. Nar, nar. Also, some mentally ill people have practiced cannibalism, such as Jeffrey Dahmer and Albert Fish. And what's funny is that was my rule for Wade. So, like, I asked him, I was like, you want to do cannibalism? And he was like, yeah. I was like, okay, one rule. No Jeffrey Dahmer, no, like, famous cannibalism cases. We have to do ones that are, like, not super known. So, don't worry, guys. 
I know all of you have probably heard those stories a million times, so these will be different. At least I have. Um, reasons for cannibalism can widely vary in some societies, especially tribal societies. Cannibalism is a cultural norm, so it's something that's way more widely accepted. Consumption of a person from within the same community is called endocannibalism. So that's like eating parts of your dead, like the ashes or whatever. That's custom in um, some like tribal communities. Ritual cannibalism of the recently deceased can be part of the grieving process when they do that, and it's actually seen as a way of guiding the souls of the dead into the bodies of the living descendants, so it's like they're through them, they're guiding them. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's not... When you think about it that way, and if you grew up in a society that does that, I don't think that's the craziest thing in the world. <clears throat> Let's see. Exocannibalism is the consumption of a person from outside the community. <coughs> oh, I am sorry. Usually as a celebration of victory against a rival tribe. Both types of cannibalism can also be fueled by the belief that eating a person's flesh or internal organs will endow the cannibal with some of the characteristics of the deceased. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like the Naganga and the occult mm -hmm. crime murders? Yeah. Same kind of idea. <coughs> In most parts of the world, cannibalism is not a societal norm, obviously, but it sometimes is resorted to in situations of extreme necessity. The survivors of the shipwrecks of the Essex and the Meduse in the 19th century are said to have engaged in cannibalism. That's just one example, as did the members of Franklin's Lost Expedition and the Donner Party, like I had mentioned earlier. Um... Such cases generally involve necrocannibalism, which is eating the corpse of someone who's already been deceased, as opposed to homicidal cannibalism, killing someone for food, or because yeah. it makes your dick hard. Yeah. One of the two. Or both. A well-known cause of mortuary cannibalism is that of the Four Tribe in New Guinea, which I've heard of them, and it spread the prion disease called Kuru. Which I had also heard of. Have you heard of that? Uh-uh. So it is... I heard about it on Ripley's Believe It or Not, I think. Like back when I was a little kid. But I went down a little rabbit hole and read all about Kuru. But in short, it's a very rare, incurable, and in variability... F in <sighs> it's incurable, and it's going to kill you. <laughs> okay. Um... It was formerly common among the four people of Papua New Guinea, like before it was witnessed in other communities because they practice cannibalism a lot. Mm. Yeah, when their descendants die. And I think as like a trophy, if they kill someone as well, I think just a lot of it goes on. So Kuru was like condensed in their society, like, People were dying left and right from it, so scientists came and studied it, and at first they didn't realize what was going on, but then they figured it out. Kuru is caused by the transmission of abnormally folded proteins, which are called prion proteins, and it leads to symptoms such as tremors, loss of coordination, and, creepy as hell, random outbursts of laughter. Jesus. Yeah, if you YouTube that shit, <laughs> it is it's so fucking scary. Um, Kuru generally lasts 11 to 14 months before it kills you outright. It's pretty much always fatal. Although the Four's mortuary cannibalism was well documented, the practice had ceased before the cause of the disease was recognized, which I thought was interesting. Uh, some scholars argue that although post-mortem dismemberment was the practice during funeral funeral rites cannibalism was not so oh okay computer so there are a lot of people that say that this happened but there's also some people saying that it did not so it's one of those things um that's all the background that i have on cannibalism so i'm going to go ahead and get into my story which i'm dumb and had wade send it to me because i was in the kitchen making deviled eggs because our chickens are lying. We have so many eggs. 
And obviously, if he's going to send it to my email, he's going to see what my story is. So, <laughs> it's not a surprise anymore for you. But it is for you guys. So, drum roll. Uruguay rub Rugby Crash of 1972. Do you know anything about this? Mm-mm. I've learned so much already in the past, like, ten minutes, honestly. I really have. <laughs> I thought cannibalism was cannibalism. I had no idea there was... Anyways, continue. Educate me, please. Learn me. I had to, like, condense my background, too, because I found out so much that was so fascinating, and then it was, like, three pages long. And I was Jeez. like, I can't do this. And this case isn't super long, but I got a lot of details in there, so I want to get going on it. Um, I had heard of this, like, that this had happened, but I didn't really know much about this story at all. It's fucking gruesome, it's gnarly, it's crazy, and I love it. And I got most of my information off of a article online titled After the Plane Crash and the Cannibalism, A Life of Hope on NationalGeographic.com. So, story starts off, there are some members of an amateur old Christians club rugby union team from Montevideo, Video, I think, Uruguay, and they were scheduled to play a match against the old boys club, an English rugby team in Santiago, Chile was where the meet was. The club president, Daniel Juan, chartered a Uruguayan Air Force twin turbo prop Fairchild FH-227D, which means nothing to you, or nothing to me, but hopefully it does to you guys. Military plane. Mm-hmm. Um, they had chartered it to fly the team over the Andes to Santiago, Chile. The aircraft carried 40 passengers and five crew members. Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas was an experienced Air Force pilot who had a total of 5,117 flying hours um, at the time of this flight. He was accompanied by co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguara. There were 10 extra seats, and the team members invited a few friends and family members to accompany them on the flight to the match. The aircraft departed... Carrasco International Airport on October 12, 1972, but a storm front over the Andes forced them to stop overnight in Mendoza, Argentina, so they made like a pit stop. Although there is a direct route from Mendoza to Santiago to the west, the high mountains require flight levels of 25 to 26,000 feet, and that's super close to that fancy aircraft plane, um, their maximum operational ceiling, which is 28,000 feet. So basically, you have to fly at least 26,000 feet to fly that path, and like, God forbid something happens, and the max height on that plane is 28,000 feet. So, yeah, I got you. Just not smart. Given that the aircraft was fully loaded, the route would have required the pilot to <clears throat> very carefully calculate the fuel consumption as well to avoid the mountains for that path. So instead, it was customary for this type of aircraft to fly another route, and this alternative route did have a crossing over Planchon Pass in Chile. Robert Canessa, one of the passengers aboard the plane that day, he might have been the pilot or the co-pilot. Um, oh no, 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 he wasn't. He was just, he was just a passenger that day. He was quoted saying this. Um, it was a very abrupt moment. We had rented an Air Force plane to go from Uruguay to Chile. We were trying to cross the Andes when the pilot said, fasten your seatbelts, we are going to enter some turbulence. Rugby players like to fool around and play macho, so we were throwing around rugby balls and singing a song, Conga, 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 the plane is dancing, Conga, which I thought was pretty fucking hilarious. The next thing, someone looked out the window and said, aren't we flying too close to the mountains? Which, ah, ugh, that like put me in the seat when I read that. The pilot had made a huge mistake. He'd turned north and begun the descent to Santiago while the aircraft was still in the high Andes. He began to climb until the plane was nearly vertical and it began to stall and shake. And then they just smashed into the side of the mountain. Jesus. I know. And I also read a lot of conflicting stories about this. So some of the stories said the pilot was like grossly negligent 
and didn't know what he was doing. But that's why I threw in his fly hours that he had yeah. at that point. So he wasn't a complete novice. Some people were saying that there was something wrong with, like, the whatever instruments they use to gauge, like, where they are. And he, it wasn't his fault because it was the equipment. Sorry, I'm thirsty. Hold on. So there's a lot of conflicting stories about that. So I'm not sure whose fault it was. Not blaming the pilot, but this did happen. Crashed into the mountain. Why ever it happened, it happened. And here's another statement from Robert Canessa, that same um, passenger that I quoted earlier. And there'll be a few from him because he wrote a book. So some of these quotes are from that. And this quote... I'll just read it. I was thrown forward with tremendous force and received a powerful blow to my head. I thought, you're dead. I grabbed my seat and recited a Hail Mary. Someone cried out, please, God, help me, help me. It was the worst nightmare you can imagine. Another boy was screaming, I'm blind. When he moved his head, I could see his brain and a piece of metal sticking out of his stomach. Fucked. Jesus fucking Christ. Super fucking fucked. So that happened. The plane fuselage came to rest, rest on a glacier at an elevation of 11,710 feet in the Mendoza province of Chile. One of the 40, or of the 45 people on the aircraft, three passengers and two crew members in the tail section were killed when it broke apart. Lieutenant Ramon Sal Martin. Martinez, I can't talk today, Orvido Ramirez, a plane steward, Gaston Costamale, Alejo Huni, and Guido Magri. A few seconds later, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valida were sucked out of the fuselage as it fell, so they were probably towards the end. Valida actually survived his fall, but stumbled down a snow-covered glacier, fell into deep snow, and was asphyxiated. His body was found by fellow passengers on December 14th, so they did find him. Um, at least four died from the impact of the fuselage hitting the snowbank, so four of the people like left in the fuselage mm -hmm. on it. Yeah, so they, they passed away from that, and it ripped the remaining seats from their anchors and hurled them to the front of the plane. The rugby team's physician, Dr. Francisco Nicola, and his wife, Esther Nicola... Um, Eugenio Parado and Fernando Vasquez, who was a medical student. Pilot Ferradas died instantly when the nose gear compressed the instrument panel against his chest, forcing his head out the window, which... Okay. Yeah, like he survived the crash initially, but it, yeah, smashed his little poor head. Co-pilot LaGuara was critically um, injured and trapped in the crushed cockpit. He asked one of the passengers to find his pistol and shoot him, but the passenger declined. 33 remained alive out of those 45 people, although many were seriously or critically injured with wounds including broken legs, which had resulted from the aircraft seats collapsing forward against the luggage partition and the pilot's cabin. Ow! Gustavo Zerbino and Robert Canessa, both second-year medical students, acted quickly to assess the severity of people's wounds and treat those they could help the most. Nando Parado had a skull fracture and remi remained in a coma for three days after the crash. Platero had a piece of metal stuck in his abdomen, so that's the dude that he saw his brains, probably, that when removed brought a few inches of intestine with it. But he immediately began helping others. Both of Arturo Neguira's legs were broken in several places, and none of the passengers with compound fractures survived the entire ordeal. Which, once I get into all the shit that went wrong during this, obviously a plane crash is bad, but like these people could not get a fucking break, so somebody with a compound fracture like that. Yeah. They just, they didn't make it super long. The Chilean SARS team, which I don't know if everybody knows what a SAR unit is, but it's search and rescue. And so the people that go out and find you when you're in the middle of nowhere and you're lost, they were notified within the hour that the flight was missing. Four planes searched that afternoon until dark. 
the news of the missing flight reached Uruguayan media about 6 p.m. that evening. Officers of the Chilean SARS listened to the radio transmissions and concluded the aircraft had come down in one of the most remote and inaccessible areas of the Andes. So, off to a great start. <laughs> they called the Andes Rescue Group of Chile, the CSA. Unknown to the people on board or the rescuers, the flight had crashed about 13 miles from Hotel Termas. It was an abandoned resort and hot spring that might have provided them limited shelter, and at least they could have warmed themselves. Because mm -hmm. remember, they're on a fucking glacier right now. Yeah. And did we leave the food on the counter for the dogs to eat? Mm -mm. Thank God. Literally, if you turn your back for more than, like, 30 seconds, it's gone. And our dogs are big. They can... They can reach anything. Anything. On our counter that's not in our fridge. And the cat helps them. All right, sorry for the tangent. Yeah, they work together, even though they act like they hate each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really terrible to know that 13 miles from where they crashed, there was somewhere that could have probably helped save all of them and they could have gotten rescue and especially towards the end when you realize how far they have to go that's rather upsetting so just remember that on the second gate on, on the second day on the second day 11 aircrafts from argentina chile and uruguay searched for the downed flight the survivors tried to use lipstick recovered from the luggage to write a big SOS on the roof of the plane, or the fuselage, I guess it's not really a plane anymore, but they quit after realizing they lacked enough lipstick to make the letters visible from the air. They saw three aircrafts fly overhead, but were unable to attract their attention, and none of the aircraft spotted the white fuselage against the snow. No. Like, they literally watched rescue planes fly over them, and, you know, it there's no way they could have seen, you know. Yeah. So, very, very upsetting. Um, the harsh con conditions gave searchers little hope that they would find anyone alive, because one, it's an airplane crash, and two, you're in the middle of the fucking Andes. Search efforts were canceled after eight days. They hoped to find the bodies in the spring when the snow melted. So nobody was coming for them. The survivors found a small transistor radio jammed between seats on the aircraft, and Roy Harley improvised a very long antenna using electrical cable from the plane. He heard the news that the search was canceled on their 11th day on the mountain, so they got to hear... That they canceled off the yeah. search conditions? Yep. So that was... I, I couldn't put all the quotes in here because we would have been talking for four hours, but there was a quote from Robert Canessa talking about that moment and just, like, the feeling of everybody. And he said the thing that saved everyone from, like, diving into despair was Roy, the guy that made the antenna. He was like, hear the good news, guys? And everybody's all pissed off. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about, good news? And he's like, means we're going to get ourselves out of here. So kind of like, you know. Mm hmm um, the survivors were pretty smart. They needed blankets, because they're on a glacier, so they skinned the seats of the plane, which contained a wool fabric. They also put all the suitcases at the back of the fuselage to keep out the weather as best they could. Um, they also, like, shoved snow in the rest to kind of try and insulate themselves. They made sunglasses from the plastic screen in the pilot's cabin to prevent snow blindness used the bottom of the seats for snowshoes, and built hammocks for the people with broken legs. All of their ingenuity was impressive, but one of the coolest things, in my opinion, was that they used a sheet of metal from under the seats, and they placed snow on it, and made kind of like a little solar collector at the end of the fuselage, and the melted snow dripped into empty wine bottles so they could collect it, and I thought that was pretty ingenious. Because <laughs> it actually takes your body more effort when you're trying to melt snow then the water is hydrating you, if that makes sense. Like, your body has to work so hard to cool it down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The survivors had extremely little food, and get this, so for the 30-some-odd people that survived, eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. That's it. During the days following the crash, they divided this into very small amounts to make their meager supply last as long as possible. Pareto ate a single chocolate-covered peanut over 
three days he spoke about because they were all just like literally dying of hunger. If I go more than three hours without eating food, I get so hangry that Wade and I get into fights. So I'm honestly pretty impressed that it's taking them this long to result to cannibalism. <laughs> just saying. True. <laughs> Even with this strict rationing, their food stock dwindled quickly. Their bodies working really hard. They're in a really harsh environment. There was no natural vegetation or animals on the glacier or nearby snow-covered mountains. There was nothing. It's like a desert except in the fucking snow and you're freezing to death. The food ran out after a week and the group tried to eat parts of the airplane, <laughs> like the cotton inside the seats and the leather. They got sicker from eating these and... I mean, these people couldn't catch a fucking break. They're trying everything they can. I don't blame them. I'd fucking eat the seat, too. Ten days after the crash, facing starvation and death, the remaining survivors mutually agreed that if they died, the others could use their body for sustenance. So all of them made this pact. They, like, talked about it. So this wasn't just, like, yeah, it's, you'll see. Survivor Robert Canessa described the decision to eat the pilots and their dead friends and family members, because... Also remember, it's been 10 days, but they have all these dead bodies packed in snow, mm -hmm. so they're not rotten. Um, this is his quote. Our common goal was to survive, but what we lacked was food. We had long since run out of the meager pickings we'd found on the plane, and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we would become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates, preserved outside in the snow and ice, contained vital, life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. Ag agonized. What am I trying to say? Agonized? There you go. Agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. We wondered whether we were going mad even contemplating such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages, or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing our limits of our fear. And all of these guys are friends. They all played on a rugby team together. They all intimately knew each other. Um... If I was in that situation, I'd probably eat a human if I had made a pack with them already. I don't know. I can't answer that question. You can't? That statement. No, I don't know. I really don't know. If it got this bad, yeah. And the person was like, yes, you can do this. Yeah, I'd probably try and do it. I don't know if I'd be able to do it, but I'd try and do it. I probably would. I like to eat. <laughs> Me too. A lot. The group survived by collectively deciding to eat flesh from the bodies of their dead friends. This decision was not taken lightly, as most of the dead were classmates, close friends, or relatives. Canessa used broken glass from the aircraft windshield as a cutting tool. He set the example by swallowing the first match matchstick-sized strip of frozen flesh. Several others did the same later on. The next day, more survivors ate the meat offered them, but a few refused or could not keep it down. In his memoir, Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home, Nando Parado wrote this about his decision. And this is another long quote, but it's important, so bear with me, guys. At high altitude, the body's caloric needs are astronomical. We were starving in earnest, with no hope of finding food. But our hunger soon grew so voracious that we searched anyway. Again and again, we scoured the fuselage in search of crumbs and morsels. We tried to eat strips of leather torn from pieces of luggage, though we knew the chemicals they'd been treated with would do us more harm than good. We ripped open seat cushions, hoping to find straw, but found only inedible upholstery foam. Again and again, I came to the same conclusion. Unless we wanted to eat the clothes we were wearing, there was nothing here but aluminum, plastic, ice, and rock. And he was correct. Pareto protected the corpses of his sister and his mother, and they were never eaten. They dried the meat in the sun, which made it a little bit more palatable, apparently, because I don't think they had a way of, like, cooking it. They were initially so revolted by the experience that they could only eat skin, muscle, and fat. When the supply of flesh was diminished, they also ate hearts, lungs, and even brains. 
raw fucking human brains. Fucking crazy. Hunger can make you do some crazy ass shit. But all that consent. Got consent to eat the brain. Just saying. All the pass <laughs> all the passengers were Roman Catholic. Some feared eternal damnation for, you know, eating people. According to um what? Oh, I think Reed is a website. According to Reed, some rationalized the act of necrotic cannibalism as equivalent to the Eucharist, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, under the appearances of bread and wine. So basically they were, like, relating it to communion, which I thought was, like, super twisted somehow. I don't know. It's fucked up. Yeah, I know. I feel like that makes it more fucked up. Um, others justified it according to a Bible verse found in John 5.13, which is, No man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That one makes a little bit more sense to me. Near midnight on October 29th, an avalanche cascaded down on the survivors as they slept, filling the fuselage and killing eight more people. These are their names, Enrique Platero, Liliana Menthol, Gustavo Nicolic, Daniel Masp. Maspons, Juan Mendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Rogue, and Marcelo Perez. The deaths of Perez, the team captain and leader of the survivors, and Liliana Menthol, who had nursed their survivors like a mother and a saint, were extremely discouraging to those remaining alive. Happened in the middle of the night, they're sleeping, literally the entire fuselage fills with snow, and then everybody was important, but these, like, super important people to them, like their captain and, you know, mm-hmm. the mother type, they all passed away. So it, it like, made them even more discouraged. The avalanche completely buried the fuselage and filled the interior to um, within three feet by three feet of the roof, so they just had that small little section. The survivors trapped inside soon realized that they were running out of air. Nando Parado found a metal pole from the luggage racks and was able to poke a hole in the fuselage roof, providing ventilation. With considerable difficulty on the morning of October 31st, Halloween, just saying, (laughs) um, they dug a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface only to encounter a furious fucking blizzard that left them no choice but to stay inside the fuselage filled with fucking snow. And it, it keeps getting fucking worse. For three days, the remaining survivors were trapped in the extremely cramped space within the fuselage. Again, three feet by three feet for headroom. Buried alive, so their whole bodies were buried in snow. Um, several feet of snow, and the corpses of their friends were also buried in there with them, the eight people that passed away. With no other choice, on the third day, they resorted to eating the flesh of their newly dead friends, because they had eaten all of the other people already. With Perez dead, cousins Eduardo and Fido Strach and Daniel Fernandez assumed leadership, It's like fucking Lord of the Flies. They took over harvesting flesh from their deceased friends and distributing it to others. So I just think nobody else could do it. So they took, Mm -hmm. yeah, the leadership role on that one. And literally it took one for the team because they're a rugby team. I'm sorry. That wasn't funny. (laughs) Let's see. Before the avalanche, a few of the survivors became insistent that their only way of survival would be to climb over the mountains and search for help because nobody was coming for them. One of the co-pilots' dying statements was that the aircraft had passed uh, Carrico. The group believed the Chilean countryside was just a few miles away to the west. They were actually more than 55 miles to the east, deep in the Andes. The snow that had buried the fuselage gradually melted as summer arrived. Survivors made several brief expeditions in the immediate vicinity of the aircraft in the first few weeks after the crash, but they found that altitude sickness, dehydration, snow blindness, malnourishment, and the extreme cold during the nights made traveling any significant distance just impossible. So they were trying it all. They were trying everything. The passengers decided that a few members would seek help. Several survivors were determined to join the expedition team, including Robert Canessa, one of the two medical students and the guy I keep quoting, but others were less willing or unsure of their ability to withstand such a physically exhausting ordeal. Numa 
Turcati and Antonio Vizintin were chosen to accompany Canessa and Parado. They were allocated the largest rations of food and the, again, humans, and the warmest clothes. They were also spared the daily manual labor around the crash site. That was essential for the group's survival so they could build their strength. At Canessa's urging, they waited nearly seven more days to allow for higher temperatures, which was honestly really smart. But, fuck, another week. So it's November 15th now. After several hours walking to the east, the trio found the largely intact tail section of the aircraft containing the galley uh, about one mile east and downhill of the fuselage, so it wasn't super far away. Inside and nearby, they found luggage containing a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum, cigarettes, extra clothes, comic books, and a little medicine. They also found the aircraft's two-way radio. The group decided to camp that night inside the tail section. They built a fire and stayed up late reading comic books. The group made many attempts at getting the radio to work for days with no avail, finally realizing it was inoperable. Also, they had found a battery by the tail section that they were trying to use, and it was discovered later that, like, I don't really know how this stuff works, but basically that kind of battery wasn't the right kind of battery for that radio. So they literally sat there for, like, that long trying to do that and it would have never worked no but they didn't know um on october 15th arturo naguira died and three days later rafael extravaran died both from gangrene due to their infected wounds numa turcati who couldn't stomach the idea of eating human flesh died on day 60 so he lasted 60 days and he just couldn't do it he weighed only 55 pounds when he passed away so that kind of tells you how dire this situation Mm -hmm. was those left knew they would inevitably die if they didn't find help the survivors heard on the transistor radio that the uruguayan air force had resumed searching for them it was now apparent that the only way out was to climb over the mountains to the west they also realized that unless they found a way to survive the freezing temperature of the nights a trek was impossible the survivors who had found the tail came up with an idea to use insulation from the rear of the fuselage, copper wire, and a waterproof fabric that covered the air conditioning of the plane to fashion a sleeping bag. On December 12, 1972, two months after the crash, Pareto, Canessa, and Vizintin began to climb the mountain to their west. Based on the aircraft's altimeter, they thought that they were at 7,000 feet elevation, when they were actually at about 11,800 feet elevation. Additionally, given the pilot's dying statement that they were near Carrico, they believed that they were near the western edge of the Andes. As a result, they brought only a three-day supply of meat. Remember, we're fucking talking about human meat. When I I say meat, every time. I remember being all drunk reading this, and I would read meat and be like, oh my god, that's right. It's like human brains. It's Um, probably some of the stuff that they had with them. Yeah, that's exactly what they had with them. Dried, friend, human meat, and brains. Um, Pareto and Canessa hiked for several more days, which I am impressed with. These guys have been out there for 60 days, and they're still going on. First, they were able to reach the narrow valley that Pareto had seen on the top of the mountain that they were standing at initially, where they found the source of Rio San Jose, leading to Rio Portillo, which meets Rio Azufre at Metis. I don't know how to say any of this shit. I'm trying. They followed the river and reached the snow line. So basically, they, they found their way. Gradually, they appeared more and more signs of human presence as they continued walking, first evidence of some camping, and finally on the ninth day, some cows. When they rested that evening, they were very tired, and Knessa seemed unable to proceed further. As the men gathered wood to build a fire, which, pick up a rock and kill one of those cows. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm saying. As the men gathered wood to build a fire, one of them saw three men on horseback on the other side of the river. Pareto called to them, but the noise of the river made it impossible to actually communicate, but they did get their attention. One of the men scribbled a note, attached it, and a pencil to a rock with some string, and he threw a message across the river. Pareto replied, 
I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for ten days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plain, there are still fourteen injured people. We have to get out from here quickly, and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? Sergio Catalan, a Chilean arguillo, or a muleteer, so I think someone who just pack mules back and forth, read the note and gave them a sign that he understood. He shouted, Tomorrow! With which Pareto and Canessa heard. Um, Catalan talked to the other two men, and one of them remembered that several weeks before, Carlos Paez... Paez's father had asked them if they had heard about the Andes plane crash, so he kind of, like, made the connection. Oh, yeah. Um, they couldn't imagine that anyone could still be alive, <laughs> which, yeah, bro, I would have thought the same thing. At sunrise the next day, um, Catalan threw loaves of bread to the men across the river. He then rode on horseback westward for ten hours to bring help. Fuck yeah, Catalan. Get it. He relayed news of the survivors to the Army Command in San Fernando, Chile, who contacted the Army in Santiago. Meanwhile, Pareto and Canessa were brought on horseback to Las Metiers de Carico, which they were fed there and allowed to rest. Unknown to them, they had hiked about 24 miles over 10 days. Since the plane crash, Canessa had lost almost half his body weight. About 97 pounds. Damn. Right? He, yeah, he lost 97 pounds. He lost more than, like, three quarters of me. I'm, like, 120-something. Mm -hmm. So close to that. Like, damn. When the news broke that people had survived the crash of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, a flood of international reporters began walking several kilometers along the route from Puente Negro to Termas del Flaco. The reporters clamored to interview Parado and Canessa about the crash and the survival ordeal. Like, these people aren't out of the woods yet. They're dying. Leave them the fuck alone. On the afternoon of December 22, 1972, Two helicopters carrying search and rescue personnel finally reached the survivors. The steep terrain only permitted the pilot to touch down with a single skid. Due to the altitude and weight limits, the two helicopters were unable to take um, half the survivors. Four members of the search and rescue team volunteered to stay with the seven survivors remaining on the mound, so they stayed there with them. Um, the survivors slept a final night in the fuselage with the search and rescue party. The second flight of helicopters arrived the following morning at daybreak. I thought that was so sweet. They carried the remaining survivors to hospitals in Santiago for evaluation. They were treated for a variety of conditions, including altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. But they fucking survived. Fuck yeah. So that's my case. I thought it was more what uplifting was it, like in some way. Seventy days or so, how many? Sixty. I think it was sixty-one days. Sixty-one. Mm-hmm. And sixty-two, 62 for, for the other people. That's fucking crazy. Fucking intense. I loved researching that one. It was a good one. Hmm. All right. So I did mine on the crossbow cannibal. I don't know who that is. Stephen Sean Griffith. He sounds like a serial Griffith. killer. Okay. Uh, he was born in Dewsbury, West Riding, Yorkshire of England. <laughs> Dewsbury, West Riding, Yorkshire. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, he was born in December on the 24th, 1969. So he was born Christmas Eve? Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Uh, I guess his motives were shooting, slashing, strangulate, well, possible strangulation and possible uh bludgeoning bludgeoning bun bludgeoning thank you <laughs> so bludgeoning. His, his crimes that are confirmed are between uh, 1987 and 2010 damn that's a long time so a little bit of back history because he is serving life in prison now but he's been kind of in and out of prison, like community service and all that dumb shit. So. After people found out he ate people? Just listen, watch. Uh, <laughs> watch and listen. Listen and L look. <laughs> listen, look, and look. listen and watch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do those things, people. 
Alright, so Griffiths was born on December 24th, 1969. He was the first child of a frozen food salesman, Stephen. And he was born I guess, in 69. That's the thing, though. His dad's name was Stephen, too, spelled exactly the same way. But his firstborn son isn't, like, junior or anything. It's just it's, it's Stephen just and Stephen. Yeah, they're both Stephen and Stephen. That's weird. And it's spelled P-H. And his mom was a... Because it's like, what, the 60s, 70s? So she was one of those, like, telephonists, the one that would, hi, how, you know, who are you trying to reach? And then, like, unplug it and then plug it into, like, the correct circuit so they could connect to each other. I mean, I've seen it in movies. Yes. But the crazy thing was, was, like, later on in Steven's life, his mom actually, she was secretly, like, a con artist, and she got convicted of fraud and a bunch of shit. Yeah. Damn, son. So, uh... The parents, Stephen's parents, they split up when he was like 13, and that left him and his siblings to stay with their mother. Okay. And uh, Stephen, you know, had the whole daddy issue, weird shit, kept on being like mom's tumor, following mom around mm. all the house. He actually started developing strange and very disturbing habits, like watching his mother have sex with Wait, numerous people. How? Yeah, I, he would just, like, I don't know, I didn't really get into it, but I'm assuming he'd just hide or be in the be underneath the bed. Oh, okay. Right? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and hit my pipe. Continue. So, uh, as a teenager, he was, like, shoplifting, and on occasions, he would be able to get into trouble and fights and shit like that. So, one time he was shoplifting, he actually slashed a clerk's face with a knife when he attempted to stop him. Damn. Yeah, so after that is when he got arrested and, you know, sentenced to three years in youth custody, and that was when he was, like, 17. Okay. So during his youth custody shit, he was 17, then he went to prison. So he's off to a good start. Yeah. <laughs> but he only served a total of, I think, like, one year in prison, and he actually lost control and he, like, didn't want contact with his family after that and told his probation officer and his fam or uh, whatever she is, like the psychiatrist lady, that uh, he fantasized about being a serial killer and shit like that. Question, though. Even though he was convicted when he was a minor, you can still be sent to prison once you're of age? I believe that's where he just did his time i'm assuming okay because it didn't stay like he was in state prison it just said youth custody okay and then it told you know it wanted to go into everything that was going on in the youth time like when he was a teenager and shit like that okay so i guess when i say prison i guess he's just in juvie still okay because he only did a year so if he was 17 and he got convicted and did one year he was 18 when he got released. Okay. So he was probably only a you know, minor when everything happened is what he got convicted on. Kid prison. Yeah. So he lost contact with his family and lost control in there after that. And then he told his probation officer and the psych that he fantasized about being a serial killer. And they released him. Good. Yep. And he began living in a flat in Manningham and he enrolled in psychology. At, I think it was... He enrolled in psychology. Mm -hmm. At Bradford College. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Manningham. 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 So in 1989, he was uh, sentenced to 100 hours of community service after an air pistol was found on his possession, or in his possession. He had previously used the pistol to shoot birds, which was, you know, not really his intent. He was really going to do some other crazy shit, I guess, is what the cops were saying. Okay. And it's against his probation, I guess. Oh, it's a weapon, yeah? Yeah. So, the in, like, the next year, he got arrested again and sentenced to two years in prison for holding a knife to a girl's throat. Damn. So, I guess the cops were kind of correct because they stopped him with the pistol, and now this time he just went with a knife and grabbed somebody. Jesus Christ. So... 
he did his two years, and then sometime after that release, he began collecting many books about serial killers in order to study them in and after, like, the, you know, doing the murder. So he could learn about how they did it and then how they got caught or how they didn't get caught. I feel personally attacked. About what? <laughs> I have a lot of serial killer books and oh. research it thoroughly. Not for that reason, though. Anyways, he mainly focused on Jack the Ripper and the Moore's murders. And then also had a lot of books on, like, the acid bath murder. Ooh. And then I guess his personal favorite, though... Was the Yorkshire Ripper. Because remember, he's from West Riding of Yorkshire. Yep. So he went, that was, I guess, his, like, personal, personal favorite. So, in 1998, Griffith began began dating a woman for two years. But the relationship ended when he invited her to his flat. And she found every single surface covered in plastic. What? Yeah. So then later, he dated another woman, but she broke up with him because his obsession with nature. Nature? The fuck is that supposed to mean? No the idea. fuck is wrong with that? This, re- this actually resulted in him stalking and harassing her for years, despite knowing that she would be the mother of his child Ooh. that was lost in a miscarriage. Aww. So in 2001, he began to drink heavily. Took a shit ton of drugs, which I dug deep. I was like, what kind of drugs does this motherfucker <laughs> take? Couldn't find out. Anyways, he uh, bought two lizards and frequently took them for walks on dog leashes. Oh my god, I love One of this. his neighbors, Rachel Farrington, was invited to his flat and saw Griffith, Griffith feed them live rats, or feed live rats to his lizards. Isn't that normal though? Uh, not really. Wait, rats are big. Anyways, Griffith's, uh, Griffith's former friend, Billy Parkin, stated that once saw him eating a live baby rat. In 2003, Griffith began, uh, or he earned his bachelor's degree in psychiatry and enrolled Jesus at the University of Bradford for his PhD a year later. Oh my god. But unfortunately being unemployed, he spent the majority of his time on the internet Downloading violent pornography. Hmm. He also uh, quoted criminals on his MySpace account. Yeah, yes. baby. Uh, he actually he was, or he would occasionally quote fictional killers, such as like uh, Freddy Krueger. Yeah, shit like that. Okay. And uh, like narcissism or narcophiliac. Serial killers, like the ones that kill their families and shit like that and sleep with their dead bodies, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Anyways, so he was unable to resist his urge, and he decided that he was going to begin to be a serial killer. He just thought of it. So he was like, fuck it, I'm going to go kill some prostitutes. Oh my god. And in the Bradford area, as the way of honor, Peter, or, yeah, I guess that's like the police chief or... General attorney. The DA? Yeah, kind of thing. The way of the Oz area's way of the honor, Peter Sutcliffe. Oh, like their version. Yeah, I think so. Sutcliffe? Oh, no, sorry, no. He killed the prostitutes in way to honor Peter, who had killed some of his victims in the same location. So he was going to go kill these prostitutes in honor. Of how Peter Sutcliffe killed them. Who's Peter Sutcliffe? Another murderer in Radford area. Oh, okay. I've never heard that name. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so he UK. was like paying tribute. Yeah. Thank you. There you go. And then uh, on June 22nd, nine, or 2009, sorry, Griffith took the prostitute named Susie Rusworth. To his flat, killed her, dismembered her in the bathtub, and the next two victims of Griffith were killed in the next year. Suzanne Blamers and Griffith's third and final victim attempt attempted to escape but was finally shot with one of his crossbows and then stabbed 
and a CCTV camera which had been installed in the hallway of, for the sole purpose of monitoring Griffith captured the whole event. No! And that's what it resulted to his arrest. Holy fucking shit! Holy fucking shit! Okay, you don't know if they were, like, streaming it to anywhere, right? Like, they didn't watch it live. They would just, like, go get the tape and then review the tape. Yeah, I don't think they watched it live. Ugh, still. Ugh, okay, continue. So, in court, Griffith introduced himself as the crossbow cannibal, an alias that would later serve as the official serial killer's nickname. So, he pled guilty to all three murders, and is currently serving prison, uh, or serving life in prison. And he attempted suicide several times while he's been incarcerated, but Good. was not successful. Fucking die. Did he cook them, or did he just eat them? No, so, you got, we gotta go way back to his other murders, because when he was in jail, he did, he claimed some shit. Okay. So... I get, like, Griffith's M.O. is he would, he would roam Bedford's, like, red light district in the middle of the night. Then he'd find prostitutes. He would bring them to the flat and then kill them. And pretty much everybody was saying that if, you know, they didn't install that camera mm -hmm. when they did and Suzanne didn't attempt to escape, then they would have probably taken a lot longer to find them because that <laughs> red light district was pretty bad. Yeah. So they don't know details on exactly who he has killed, but after killing his victims, Griffith would dismember them in the bathtub and cook parts of their bodies for him to consume, sometimes eating them raw even, like he'd be cutting them and eat them. How? Damn, that is something. Okay. Human sushi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he would actually, like, place... He would. He made baggies. Like he prepared okay. bags of shit what and do you mean? put them in the freezer. Like he would, you know, parts that he wasn't gonna consume that day. Like the one he'd literally cut it, eat it, or cut it and throw it in the oven or whatever. He'd put it in a baggie and he would like leftovers. Yeah, and then some he would take and dump at a lake, like nearby lake. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So. uh I guess following his second arrest is when he kind of got like a profile and why they decided to start following this guy. Because he was diagnosed with unspecified personality disorders. What does that mean? Pretty much later they diagnosed him as being sadistic and like psychopath. Okay. Uh... He was a narcissist, I guess. Obviously. And he no longer wanted, like, fame. He just didn't like human existence. That's why he killed people? Yeah, and why he killed them so first. He was just so miserably miserable that he killed people mm -hmm. because he was that miserable. Fuck this dude. Yeah, he was a little nuts. A little. But he also, sus like, he's suspected to kill at least three other women. Right. He's confirmed for those other ones, but 2001, they said that Rebecca Hill, in April of 2000, or 26, 2001, she was 19, was killed, and it kind of matched his, like, impulsive, you know, no-control type shit. But also, the other cool thing that I thought was, and I have watched this episode, was Criminal Minds. Mm. They didn't mention him or anything like that, but it was close enough to... I've seen that episode. Yeah. Now that you say the, the crossbow part, I remember yep. that. Yep. That's, they stay, they, I found like a couple, when I was doing my research, I found like a couple blogs and forums that had mentioned that I believe that they had the inspiration from this guy's case because it was 2010. And just to verify, so this guy was crazy enough that not only did he take people back to his house to kill and then dismember and cook and eat when he had neighbors, but he also lived in such a small quarters that she got out into a hallway where other people's entrances mm -hmm. were and he was crazy enough to walk out with a fucking crossbow and shoot her in the head and then drag her back in. 
That was a good one. It was pretty good. So <laughs> he has like a number. They numbered his victims as like three to eleven. He has one attempted murder and then one hostage attempt because he kept that girl. Okay. So his time, like his span of crimes, is from like nineteen eighty seven to November two thousand one, or sorry, uh, May twenty first two thousand ten. My bad. So he was like he was convicted of shoplifting and assault. Possession of uh, air pistol and am- animal cruelty, attempted of murder, and three counts of murder. Damn. Yeah. And he's doing life in England somewhere. I didn't look to find out what prison. I hope somebody rapes him so hard that he just dies. Probably already has. I hope so. Been raped, not dead. Oh. Yeah. It's probably been Well, raped. that too. Anyway, <laughs> that's it. That's all I got. Sorry, guys. I thought that was a pretty good one. Well, thank you for listening Um, real quick with our social media stuff. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Booze, Bullshit, and True Crime, same name. If you have any stories, any weird shit, something you'd like to share for or share with us, interact. We have an email. It's booze, BS, and true crime at gmail.com. Also on platforms, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and it really, really helps us, you guys, if you subscribe or follow. Um, all right. Bye, Felicia. Thank you. Bye-bye.